Welcome back to a new episode of Escapist Corner. Um, a lot of things have been happening lately. Um, and um, yeah, we have the coronavirus still going on. We have CrossFit uh, has a new CEO. We have uh, a big mass riots going on in the States. Uh, and um, maybe also kind of trickling over to the to Europe I don't know um, but uh, from the coronavirus uh, I would like to uh, it's some, something I would like to go into deeper on in a future podcast with somebody who's a better expert in that um, because I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see the big the big pain of all the lockdowns and everything will come uh, postponed um i i i try to stay optimistic on this and uh, hopefully we're not going to see anything but there is a big chance that we will see uh mass unemployment coming and uh, i think this is something that we haven't been read, reading too much of in the in the normal media and like what the what the economic blowback will be from all the lockdowns that we've been doing and of course how many people will will suffer and die because of um, poverty in the future um, however those are speculations and uh, we're going to go into the the podcast of today which is with uh, Frank Mitlerner uh, I did this a couple uh, weeks ago uh, Frank is uh a pre pretty uh, knowledgeable guy. So he's um, he's a professor at uh, UC Davis in California. He's actually born in in um, in Germany. Uh, he's German, but yeah, he he did his uh, master of science in um, agriculture engineering here in Germany, and then he um, he moved to the states and he's done his PhD there in animal science. He has been very deep into the science of agriculture, to, uh, and especially a lot about uh, meat production and so on, and a, life, a lifetime cycle analysis of greenhouse gases caused by agriculture and, uh, and particularly uh, for meat production. He is um, he's a pretty big uh, proponent to uh, sustainability and sustainable uh, agriculture because of uh, just looking at the metrics of greenhouse gases and uh, stuff like that and uh, we go through um, some data on how yeah how much water and everything you need for for cattle for agriculture uh, where you where can we grow stuff where can we do this and that uh, very helpful uh, Frank is also um, kind of the guy who is also um, out there fighting a lot of misinformation. There, there are big movements out there trying to uh, influence, uh, particularly media and and also legislation on what we should be growing or not, and they are. Uh, maliciously uh, seeding out bad data and bad science and Frank has been very good at detecting those and he's been debunking those 
and not on like a YouTube level, but uh, actually on a governmental level and uh, also in, in the respected science forums like The Lancet and so on. So um, this guy is somebody you should listen to. Uh, don't listen to me, but listen to him. Um, he is uh, very active on Twitter and shares a lot of good information there, articles and everything. And uh, yeah, you can make up your own mind. Um, connecting to this episode, I will have a um, episode with uh, Ben Bickman, who is a specialist in metabolic disorders and especially in insulin uh, and mechanics about that. It's going to be an awesome episode. So, um, but yeah, now to the episode with Frank. Have a listening. Bye. I'm uh, Frank Mitlerner. Uh, I, I, I think I'm the only one who might be... Uh, pronouncing your your last name great the, in the podcast yes. world <laughs> yes you uh, are yes you are um so i'm because because I, you also have you also have an umlaut in your name that's why yeah 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 that's it <laughs> um i um i'm very honored to have you on uh and uh, this is sort of a a, a dream come true for me to be able to talk to uh these really bright minds out there, um, and uh, so I'm, I'm humbled. And uh, before we get into the weeds of everything, um, I, I thought we might just start with uh, just the background because uh, you are uh, you are from Germany, but you live in in the, in, uh, in uh, the states. So where 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 do we start? Where where do you come from in Germany? I grew up near the Dutch border in a place called Viersen, that's near Düsseldorf, and that's um, really close, maybe 10, 15 miles from the Dutch border in Western Germany. Right after the war came down, I was the first West German student to study in East Germany, in Leipzig, and <laughs> did my master's there in agricultural engineering, and then I went to Texas, where I did my PhD, and then yeah. from there I went to California 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's now Leipzig is, is like this. Uh, Really cool town to go as a as a student. I think uh, I think yep. that was a bit different when when you were <laughs> young. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But yes. You, you were you were you were before your times, as we say. I was, you know, when I when I studied there, um, that was really literally right when the wall came down, and many of my professors were still uh, communist, and uh, they looked at me as if I were a Martian who just landed. <laughs> you know, on their campus. But uh, I had a great time there. I had a really good time and great education and made many friends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and why did you go for animal science uh, or agriculture and engineering and, and uh, animal science? What, what was the drive for that? Well, I think it was kind of a coincidence because I really wanted to become a psychiatrist but I was not accepted into medical school. As it showed, or as it uh, turned out later, I was rejected to medical school um, because of a mistake that was made. So they first rejected my application, and then later, after I signed up for tropical, subtropical agriculture and agriculture engineering as a major, I received a letter from the medical school saying that they apologized for making an administrative mistake uh, and they are lucky to or they are uh, pleased to offer me 
admissions to uh, to medical school. I took the letter and I ripped it into pieces and I <laughs> I stayed my course. So yeah. and the reason and the reason why I studied animal agriculture was because at the time I spent some time in southern Africa and I visited some ostrich ranches and game ranches and um, cattle ranches and I loved it. I fell in love with it. Yeah. I just literally fell in love with it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I can understand that I, I grew up, I didn't grow up on a myself, but my, um, my relatives had, um, you know, a farm with cows and pigs and uh, chickens and so on. And so I grew up from a small, small boy. I was uh, feeding cows and bringing them to the fields and so on. You know, I, I don't know, five years old, I was just putting out, you know, 30 cows into into the into the greens and uh i don't know i i i always had that i always i always will bring that with me where i'm where i'm at and i kind of know had the experience of you know growing up something and uh, uh every part of it like you you get uh, calves and also when you have to send them for slaughter and stuff like that so i uh, i've been in uh, most of the process <laughs> of, of mm -hmm. that um, so, uh, and uh, when you have done that, uh, uh, this is kind of the fallacy of uh, knowledge, right? You think that everyone knows how it is, but uh, but that's uh, not the case. I mean, I haven't been to the uh, the big farms or big cattle ranges and stuff like that. But um, anyway, you you went into uh, did you go straight to Texas after that for the PhD or how, how did it work? Yeah, after, after my time in Leipzig, I went to Göttingen University for a little while, and um, yeah. then from there to um, Texas Tech University, where I did my PhD. That's in, in Lubbock, Texas. And then after I did my PhD, a little postdoc, and then I went from there to Davis, California. I can tell you, going from Germany to Lubbock, Texas, to Davis, California, is quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I'm thinking, going from from the west to the east, and yes. so you're almost in this conservative, uh, a conservative, uh, communist atmosphere. Almost, uh, it's uh, Freundschaft and everything uh, <laughs> in the classroom, and then you go to the deepest, uh, deepest states of uh, cowboys uh, in one sense, Texas. Um, yeah, how was how was that? <laughs> Exactly. Texas was, it was actually a great experience. People are very friendly there. Um, if you're interested in livestock, if you're interested in cattle and beef cattle, then that's where you go. I mean, yeah. that's, if you are interested in studying beef cattle, uh, that's where they are. And so I was particularly interested in the environmental impact of livestock, and in this case, beef and dairy. And so I did my PhD on beef environmental management, uh, working in large feedlots which are the ones that are most often critiqued. And yeah. then after I did that, I came to California because that's where the dairy cows are. So um, I have seen and worked pretty much in all those areas in the States and also internationally where um, cattle production, but also other livestock species are raised. I have a pretty yeah. good uh, sense for how it's done and where it's done, how and, and so forth. So yeah, I have a good overview of livestock. Yeah. Yeah, um, and this is kind of how I stumbled uh, across you. Was you you're a, 
uh, very productive, my friend, on putting out good information um, uh, as a researcher and and uh, and also because uh, you're very active on Twitter. And uh, I've seen a lot of people within the dietary scene uh, have, uh, you know, um, uh, used your data to to show especially when it comes to what what dietary choices uh, are sustainable and and stuff like that so that's kind of where i i i stumbled across you uh first time i think on twitter and then i've seen you also on on a couple of podcasts with uh with some people on 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 uh, youtube and then kind of gone down that rabbit hole of uh yeah you have lectures and speeches and stuff like that so uh very much good information out there already and um uh, so what I, what I what I was thinking is uh that is uh, or that I first wanted to ask you is what uh what makes you want to do that like what makes you want to put out that information and in, uh in uh and Twitter and so on, because that that could be a, really a time-consuming black hole. <laughs> uh, mm, you are right; it could be. Um, yeah. Now, I'm a I'm a professor, but I'm also an air quality extension specialist. And uh, in my role of of being an extension specialist, uh, my job is to get information from the university out into the real world. Yeah. Uh, many professors want to publish their work, want to do research and publish their work and, uh, and feel that they have to study, that they have to teach students uh, because it's expected of them. I, I feel different about that. I, of course, do research and publish it. That's my, that's of course a main role, but I also love teaching. I love teaching and I love teaching students on campus and I love teaching people off campus who are interested in the subject matter area that I represent. And so to me, it's the most noble thing I can do to do research and then share that with an interested public. Because obviously there's a lot of interest in how livestock is raised, what the environmental footprint of livestock is, what the environmental footprint of our food choices are. Um, and not just the environmental footprint, but also what the animal welfare considerations are, food safety considerations, um, the whole issue around workers in livestock agriculture, um, the question of financial viability of animal agriculture, all of these things are sustainability areas that I, that I hold dear and uh, do research on. And uh, in my opinion, that research is only really valuable if it gets out. And how do you best get it out? Yeah. So if I were just to publish in the peer-reviewed literature, I would have 20, 30 pe people uh, cite a, a paper I publish a year. Yeah. Uh, while I'm on Twitter, I have about 3 million impressions in a month. Okay, so you yeah. don't get that reach. You don't get that reach if you're not on social media. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, it's good. <laughs> good to... It's good to use that for the right reasons, I, I would say, um, especially, but it, there, it's so much noise on it, of course, but I think uh, one, like a one small result of that is, of course, you know, we get to spread good information to people that are not experts in uh, agriculture and air, 
air quality and and so on. So I I um, I wanted to kind of back back a bit to uh, also some some stuff that uh, I think we we kind of experienced this uh, uh, on opposite sides of the world, but at the same time, uh, and there has been like a very strong movement, I would say, especially in uh, in the uh, I don't know tech world, but also in the uh, like uh, Netflix and stuff like that to produce certain amount of uh, movies and content uh, that is uh, based on wrong facts. So, uh, and why I'm, to be more specific, we have uh, some movies called Cowspiracy, What the Health, Game Changers, and stuff like that on Netflix. Now, there are many bad, bad movies, bad, uh, you know, uh, documentaries online, uh, and I don't get that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me if, if, if people do bad stuff out there. However, what makes me may, maybe itch a bit and, and take on this is because I talk to normal people every day mm -hmm. and they, and they come and they, they say these things that they got from these movies yes. and, they're, and they're convinced. So, and when it comes to food and dietary, so on, uh, People are very, it's a very sensitive topic and people are very easily uh, convinced to something and it's very hard to get out of that. So, uh, and I'm, I'm doing these kind of tests on myself, uh, of course, too. Like, am I a very biased person in, in this case? Um, mm -hmm. And that might be, but if we look at uh, specifically these movies, then uh, Cowspiracy, for example, they, they have been citing numbers. And I think this is important that they have taken numbers that uh, uh, that you have uh, shown to be false, right? Um, yes. And uh, specifically, uh, you, you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there's something called uh, FAO in, in the States um, that does these lifetime uh, analysis of uh, of uh, greenhouse gases and, uh, and the environmental footprint of uh, certain production, like uh, beef production, uh, transportation, and so on. And uh, these movies, they quote these studies then, uh, but you uh, are at least the only one I know that has been able to just pinpoint down <laughs> to these uh, uh, researchers to say, hey, this is not correct data. Yeah, and so, yeah, so um, let me provide some nuance on this. So the FAO is the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, and they sit in Rome, Italy. The FAO is an organization that I have critiqued in the past, but I've also worked with them. I was a chairman of a committee that established a global gold standard for life cycle assessments for livestock, meaning um, I was chairman of a partnership that had 300 scientists develop 
the methodology on how to quantify the environmental footprint of livestock and poultry. So I do have a good feel for uh, what these reports say that were produced within the FAO. The FAO originally put out a report called Livestock's Long Shadow, in which they compared livestock to transportation. Uh, I showed them why I disagreed. And uh, the reason why I disagreed was because they used different methodologies to, to assess the impact of livestock on climate versus the impact of transportation on climate. And they, and they after that criticism, uh, retracted that part of their report. Later, they reviewed their numbers and arrived at different numbers and so on. That's the kind of nuance that's getting lost. This film conspiracy did not use FAO numbers. They used horrifically wrong numbers from a group that calls itself the World Watch Institute. Sounds like an important name, an important entity, but it consists of three former world bankers who, for whatever reason, feel that they are qualified to make major assessments. What they said, what the so-called World Watch Institute said, and the number that was quoted by Cowspiracy, was that livestock emits 51% of all greenhouse gases globally. That's a laughable number. And it is a dangerous number. And here's why it's a dangerous number. So first of all, it's laughable because it's wrong, okay? Globally, livestock emits 14.5%. That's a global average. In Germany, in the United States, in other developed countries, livestock emits approximately 4% of the total. The fossil fuel sector, meaning cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, factories, and so on, and power production, emit 80% of all greenhouse gases. For those who don't believe that, they should just go and uh, view the recent assessments during COVID-19, yeah. where, where you see how greenhouse gases have gone down because of the global lockdown and how smog forming gases have gone down because of the lockdown. I assure you, the cows didn't stop belching. Yeah. But the cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, and so on, they stopped for two months. And as a result, you see a drastic reduction of emissions. So, uh, conspiracy was totally wrong, was criticized by people like me. I wrote a blog about it, and you can find it on my GHG Guru blog site. Um, that's, by the way, my social media handle, GHG Guru, stands for Greenhouse Gas Guru. And I, um, I criticized them, and they accepted my criticism. And, uh, and since that criticism, since my blog no longer used at 51%. They still use a wrong number, the, the original FAO number of 18%, but at least no longer the ridiculous number of 51. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, that puts it a bit into perspective. So uh, I think this is also, again, uh, the 18% and so on is more, more of the number that most people here are, uh, are using. Um, do, do you see a big difference between like the States and, and Germany, for example, when it comes to greenhouse gases from? Uh... Um, I would say, first of all, the 18% number is no longer used by its authors. Yeah. Okay. 
the authors, the FAO, has revised that to 14.5%. It's not a huge difference, but it is a difference. In the United States, in Germany, in the UK, in other developed countries of the world, all of agriculture amounts to approximately 8 to 10%. In the United States, it's 9%. In Germany, it's about the same. Half of that, approximately half of that, is plant agriculture. The other half is animal agriculture. So if you want to know life cycle emission numbers uh, mm. for beef, for beef, uh, I first give you the global numbers of all greenhouse gases in the world. Global beef makes up 6% of all greenhouse gases. Global dairy makes up 3% of all greenhouse gases. In a country like the United States, where we have a lot of beef and a yeah. lot of dairy, uh, beef emits 3% of the total and dairy emits 2% of the total. So it's not nothing, but it's certainly not uh, the horrific numbers that the vegan community like to circulate because they always do the following. They actually use a little trick. They cite global numbers because those global numbers are higher. And they say, you know, livestock emits more greenhouse gases than transportation, 14.5%. Uh, what they don't say is that this is a global number. Okay. Now, if you, if you were interested in buying a car, if you were interested in buying a car, and you were interested in the environmental footprint of that car, would you ask your car dealer what the average global emissions of a car are? Or would you seek for specific car information of the make and model that's available to you in Germany? Yeah. Of course yeah. you would look for of course you would look for the type of car that you can buy in Germany and not have that be uh, conflated with uh, cars driven in Ethiopia and Paraguay, Brazil and Australia. That makes no sense. But that's what they do with livestock. They use global averages because they make livestock look bad. And the reason why they make livestock look bad is because in many developing countries, livestock is very inefficient, meaning per animal, livestock produces very little product there. So, for example, the average cow in India produces between 10 to 20 times less milk than the average cow in the United States or Germany. Yeah. And because of that, because of that, they have to have herds of livestock that are enormous in size. Okay, that's yeah. why that's why the global environmental footprint of livestock looks large because of inefficiencies in livestock production in the developing world. Yeah, and if we compare that then um, to um, if we say these. Uh, these countries, underdeveloped countries, would uh, take out their uh, beef and cattle, uh, you know, goats and everything, um, and replace that with, I don't know, uh, what could they replace that with on the same area? They're not replacing that. They are, <laughs> they're going the opposite route. They're going the yeah. opposite route. In the developing world, the demand for animal source foods is, is increasing. And the reason why it's increasing is that many people who, were, who lived in poverty in the past will, as a first line of action, as a first line of action, when they have more disposable income, 
change their diet to a more plant-based diet. That's the first thing people do. When you have uh, poor countries and people all of a sudden make more money because you know they have better jobs or so, the first thing they do is they buy some eggs, they buy some milk, they buy some meat because they know that this is more nutrient-dense food and uh, this is desirable for their kids. That's the first thing they do. So they are not going off and buy the impossible burger, okay? That's not yeah. happening. Yeah. That's oh, not uh, happening. But uh, if we look at like specifically, would, would it be possible uh, in, I don't know, Ethiopia, what would they, like what kind of crops would they need to, to have to replace those cattle? Uh, that's kind of so it's it's a great question in the whole northern africa and middle east area uh you have the situation of um water deficiency so traditionally agricultural systems in these areas are livestock heavy okay they have a lot of goats they have a lot of sheep some cattle but mainly small ruminants uh, because for the most part, the land they have is marginal land. It's not really suitable for crop production. In those areas where they do grow crops, and you will see that if you look around the internet these days, um, they are very susceptible to major plagues. For example, right now, the whole area of Northern Africa and Middle East is destroyed by... Um, by uh, what do you call them? Um, roaches. Are... Sorry? Parasites? Uh, no, no, no. By, uh, it's, not, it's not grasshoppers, but it's, they look like grasshoppers. What are they called? Um, it escapes me right now, but yeah. um, they look like grasshoppers. I, do you know what I'm talking about? Locusts. They're called locusts. Okay. So, okay. locusts. Yeah. Uh, of Deutsch Heuschrecken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heuschrecken. In yeah. English, in English, they're called locusts. Okay, and uh, and these locusts have destroyed everything in these areas this year. So there will be major famine in those areas because the crops that people eat are gone. So without the livestock sector, they'd be they'd be in deep trouble there right now. Yeah, uh, I mean that that. Uh has been happening since the Bible was wrote, written. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, <laughs> but That's correct. Um, so my, my point is, uh, like if we look at a country like Egypt, they more or less need to drain the entire Nile, right, to be able to uh, do these kind of uh, crop, uh, crops in, in those areas, right? Uh, so that means we're going to lose a lot of animal life in from from the river i guess uh so looking from uh again from maybe an uh, environmental point of view um what and I, I think you you are definitely much more of an expert in this than me but to be able to grow something you you will need to have uh it's not just enough to have some seeds and some some um soil like we maybe we need to just look at what does what is actually inside the soil so what do we need to have to grow something to grow crops um and where does that come from um 
I mean, uh, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest inventions uh, was made by a German. Um, uh, it was uh, during the, or uh, was it before or after the Second World War? World War? Uh, Haberbusch. Haberbusch. Yeah. Uh, uh, using fertilizers, right? Uh, yeah. And it's called, Hab called Haberbusch. Yeah. Haberbusch. Haberbusch. And is, so basically, what, what is fertilizer? Um, so, so, yeah, just like we, you know, humans and animals need, need nutrients to grow, need nutrients to, to live, so do plants. And so they need stuff like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, numerous macro and micronutrients. One of the most important nutrients they need is nitrogen. And Haber-Bosch, uh, you just cited Haber-Bosch, uh, invented a process by which nitrogen, which is 70, over 70% 70 of our atmosphere is nitrogen gas, uh, by which nitrogen is pulled out of the atmosphere and made into nitrogen fertilizer. This was the reason, this is the reason, this process is the reason that about half of humankind is on our planet. Yeah. Without that process, we wouldn't be able to sustain life as we know it. So some people will say this is wonderful, other people will say this is terrible, we shouldn't have as many people on our earth. Um, and they always say that, um, thinking of the other people and not themselves and their own families, of course, um, because they like their life. They, they appreciate their own life. But um, so, so plants need, they need nutrients. Plants also need uh, proper soil, healthy soil. They need uh, microbial rich soil. Uh, and they need water, and they need water. Of all agricultural land in the world today, of all agricultural land in the world today, two-thirds do not satisfy those requirements I just listed. They are either nutrient poor or they are water poor, and because of that, two-thirds of all agricultural land are referred to as marginal land. You cannot grow crops there, but what is done to that land is livestock is kept there. In fact, ruminant livestock, and the reason for that is that ruminant livestock, such as cattle, sheep, and goats, can eat the only vegetation that grows there, yeah. which is cellulose-rich grasses. And the reason why they can ingest and digest that is because of the rumen they have, Wiederkäuer format, the yeah. rumen they have that enables them to digest cellulose. We humans or pigs or poultry cannot digest cellulose. They can. And now comes the other part of this equation. 30% of all agricultural land in the world is arable land. So 70% is marginal, cannot be used yeah. for crops. And 30% is arable, meaning there are enough nutrients, the soil is okay, and there's enough water to grow crops. And that's where we grow all the other, all the other food for human and animal consumption. Yeah. So when some people say we should stop producing livestock because they're using all that land that we should better use for growing crops directly, they leave out that 70% of that land could not be used to grow crops directly, but only ruminant livestock. I mean, uh, theoretically, we could use that land, right? If we would change that soil, <laughs> right? You can't change. You cannot change the soil. 
you cannot change the soil. I mean, if you look at the areas we just talked about, Northern Africa or uh, the Middle East or large parts of Australia, um, there are two things you, you, you run into. The one is insufficient soil quality and secondly, insufficient water. So you can, of course, you can grow crops in the desert in Saudi Arabia or in Israel. But how do you do it? You have to import vast amount of nutrients and you have to desalinate water to get the salt out of, get the salt out of sea, out of ocean water and use that water to irrigate. And that is cost prohibitive for the vast majority of developing countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you, you require energy for that, right? So yeah. you, will need, you will need to spend energy to make that energy uh, in a very what, insufficient and, way. And what is energy? Energy is, uh, you know, a, a process by which uh, a lot of carbon is released in the atmosphere. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. Yeah. So that is, uh, if we look at greenhouse gases, is the major, major one that we know, uh, that most people know about, and then of course methane when it comes to uh, comes up also uh, regarding livestock. Um, but if we look at, uh, if I just go back there a bit, we have this uh, situation where we have, okay. We want to grow crops in, in these areas because of, uh, I don't know, insane incentives. Um, uh, I'm just saying, how, how are we supposed to uh, make that uh, sustainable following? Uh, and I'm going to go into this now, which is, I just glanced on, on this uh, Eat Lancet uh, report that came out. I don't know mm -hmm. if you had the time to do it. Um, oh yeah, but, but <laughs> basically, what I when I look at, at their at their illustrations, I only see fruits and and uh, crops, and then they have some. Uh, when you look a bit further down, it says like eight grams of beef or something like that uh, consumption, and uh, I'm wondering how we're supposed to be able to get that those that entire plate full with. Uh, with crops uh, uh, in a sustainable way. Well, I know. I know because um, even before this report came out, I was already quite active in uh, discussing it on social media. Again, if you Google, yeah. if, you, uh, if you check my Twitter handle and eat lens, you will find the way I argued along those lines. Yeah. They are proposing, they are proposing um, a diet that's largely a vegan diet. Um, they would argue that's not true because we still allow some animal source foods, but the amount that they allow is laughable. It is absolutely laughable. If you take, um, if you take a two euro coin, a two euro coin, yeah. and then you take two of these two euro coins and put them next to each other, that's the amount of beef you're allowed to eat. Yeah. They're allowed, they're allowed to eat, they allow you to eat one and a half eggs but not per day, per week, yep. per week. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, my friend, but I inhale one and a half X. Okay. If uh, somebody were to tell me that's all I can eat in a week, then that's laughable. So yep. it is a largely vegan diet. 
And they are proposing that we replace animal source foods, uh, particularly animal source proteins, with nuts. Okay. So there are five places in the world where you can grow nuts. I don't California know if the authors, one, right? I don't know okay. if these people are aware of that, but you can grow yeah. nuts in Iran, Iran, Turkey, China, Australia, and California. That's where you can grow nuts. Yeah. So the Chinese are not exporting their nuts. The Australian nuts are largely macadamias. Iran is a you know, country that many folks have trade issues with and so on. It's not really a major export nation for nuts. Turkey has other issues, as you know, political issues. They could produce it, the climate would be okay, but not in the quantities needed. Yeah. That pretty much leaves California. And we already have everything here in nuts, okay? We have more nuts than anybody could ever uh, wish for because nuts, nuts are great. They taste well and uh, they are, they're good nutritionally and so on, but they are very thirsty, very thirsty plants. To grow one single almond nuts, you need about four liters of water. Four liters yeah. to grow one single nut. And that's nuts. Yeah. If you understand my pun here, yeah. uh, because we are very water deficient in California, okay? For us yeah. to have so, so much uh, acreage in nuts is not a very smart decision, but it is the reality. But what I can tell you is, it is absolutely impossible it is absolutely impossible to replace the animal source foods we have today with nuts and legumes. We simply don't have the land anywhere in the world to do that with. Yeah. So I have many reasons as to why I seriously disagree with Eat Lancet. I have been yeah. on the record uh, along those lines, and you'll find a lot of my, my content on social media. Yeah. I mean... Um... I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not super deep into to this uh, yet, but it has struck me that I've seen these being uh, quoted uh, all over the place, right in media. And I was. I've been like trying to figure out what's the, where does these guys come from? Uh, so I've done like just superficial, uh, you know, research on what these guys are up to. And uh, what I understand, they okay, they want to change uh, kind of the world and sustainable sustainability of uh, the food system. The uh, the the thing I don't understand is why they want to do it. Like, what's what's driving them? Uh, in one sense, I I, I read a lot about uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Uh, but I don't know. I don't like uh, understand the why in that sense. I understand, okay, mm -hmm. sustainability and stuff like that. But um, well, there are, mm -hmm. there are a lot of scientists in their team. So I'm 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 seriously wondering how can you how can you make this? Uh, I, I mean, where do you get the land from doing this? And then secondly. Um, what do you need to do to produce this, like uh, from a from a land area, and then how do you grow crops? Like, what what are the ingredients for growing crops? It's not you. Uh, you need to fertilize, uh, and you need to put water into it. 
and stuff like that. So, um, so, so let me tell you this. So first of all, I, I know who the authors are um, and what their track record is. I would say that most of the authors has a pretty uh, well-documented and profound vegan history. Okay. And um, I, I have no problem with, with vegans. They can eat whatever they want. I, I have no problem with that. I have a problem with them having a problem with what I eat <laughs> because they don't want me to make my choices as to what I can eat or what you can eat. They want to tell you what to eat. And you know what? I have a beef with that because it is my choice. It is my choice who I vote for. It is my choice who I pray for. It is my choice who my partner is, and it is my choice what I eat. And I will not let anybody meddle with any of these freedoms. It is totally undemocratic for people to try to make not just recommendations, but take people's right of choice away in any of those areas. It is not appropriate. It is not appropriate for anybody to tell you or me what we shall eat. And they are actually in their report, in their election, clear that they want to force us to go plant-based. It's yeah. there. So the same people who wrote this report are, have a long track record of being totally anti-meat, and they would have gone completely plant-based with this report if there hadn't been one author who has an animal background and who insisted that they don't make this into a vegan report. But that was their intent. That was their intent. I, I questioned the environmental component of this report as faulty. And I wrote some blogs and some posts on Twitter. And I got a response from the director of EAT. Uh, in an email. And in this email, he said to me that Eat Lancet, while tooted as the planetary diet to protect human health and planet health, with planet health, they mean the environment, the report was really written uh, with human health in mind. And that Eat Lancet is not the diet to, to halt climate change. It's not the diet to reduce environmental harm. In fact, I could read his email to you if you're interested in it. Um, he stated things in his email to me that were totally contradicting what Eat Lancet tooted to the world. But all that being said, my impression is that they didn't get to where they wanted to go. Uh, the whole thing was tooted as a big report and international, and this is the new planetary diet. They didn't get that traction, the traction they, they, they sought to get. Um, and so I think it's kind of history. Uh, what I see here is, uh, I mean, they, they just released this, uh, their latest uh, uh, report, right? Uh, and they say, uh, let's see here. Uh, it, this is a quote, and they, they quote one of their uh, 
professors in the second page and they say transformation to health diets by 2050 will require sustainable dietary shifts global consumption of fruits vegetable nuts and legumes will have to double and consumptions of food uh, such as red meat and sugar sugar will have to be reduced by more than 50 percent a diet rich in plant-based foods with fewer animal source product confers both improved health and environmental benefits so um i i'm i'm not sure like again i'm not the specialist when it comes to to uh or let's say this way i'm i'm not a professor in in uh, and sustainability uh when it comes to agriculture uh, mm-hmm. uh but um, I'm not a professor when it comes to nutrition. However, uh, what I can conclude looking at most of these uh, uh, claims when it comes to at least, uh, uh, we say, the, the health claims of uh, this diet uh, are usually based on also very weak evidence. So. Um, so I would just not leave uh, for this podcast. I would just leave that un, un, uh, uncommented because I'm not. Uh, I think I I would have to have a uh, mm-hmm. so, someone who is a really uh, expert on that. Uh, but I think you can mm-hmm. fill in the blank on the environmental uh, question when it comes here. And as you said, they sell. Yeah self-reported to you and said it has nothing to do with or it is not the environment that is important in this case uh, so I'm, yeah I'm, i can i'm a i don't understand why they are um why they are then uh, claiming this still <laughs> well let me just read something to you okay so that you don't don't just take it from me but i will actually give you a quote yeah I just need to find that really quickly. Um, There are, so in his email to me about uh, the environmental piece of Eve Lancet, Frederick de Klerk, who is the director for, for EAT, wrote to me, and I quote, the meat consumption limits proposed by the EAT commissions were not set due to environmental considerations, but were solely in light of health recommendations. The dietary guidelines only refer to healthy eating. Thus, it is not the diet to reduce climate change, but the diet to reduce the risk of premature mortality due to dietary-related health causes. That came straight from Eat Lancet. And so I think it's pretty clear what that means and, uh, you know, how that's different from what they are tooting uh, in, in the rest of the world. I mean, you, you said something uh, in, a, in another podcast that I think it was very also uh, that I've seen now other people doing research on, on their research. But you said when you looked at their research, it's been... Uh, very sloppy work. Work, if I'm paraphrasing you, like uh, sloppy work in a sense that it makes you almost passive aggressive, I guess. Um, 
And uh, I just read a report now from a couple, I think it was three other scientists. Uh, I, I can't recall their names right now, but they had done a, uh, they tried to replicate the, the, these claims on, on health now that you said that. Mm -hmm. um, so they tried to replicate what, how would their diet have a positive impact yeah. on on uh, on uh, human health for people getting overweight or so on and they could not replicate this because it's not transparent their numbers yeah yeah and i uh, saw that too yeah so it it all seems i mean again i'm uh, i'm trying to be not uh, uh as you say in german parteiisch i i'm not trying to be biased I, I, biased and i just want to i just want to know um okay let's go with your your claims and and say so let's play this game how can we make this uh sustainable uh so so let me tell you my let, let, let me tell you what my perspective is whether we like it or not we all have our filters okay we all have our filters we all have our biases we all have our biases it's not it's not fair. If I were to say I have no bias, I'd be a liar. Okay, we all have our biases, but uh, but let's just put everything we know on the table and um, and outline the biases. So, for example, if eighty percent of the authors of that report were vegans, then that would be a bias, in my opinion, a bias noteworthy to the audience of readers. Right? We should know that. We should know that, and it should be very clear. I mean, I am very clear that I am not a vegan. Okay, I'm very clear about that. Uh, if I, if and where I have a conflict of interest, I will say where that conflict of interest lies. Okay, so for example, uh, if a study is funded by whatever sponsor, then that that will be declared. That's the way you do it. That's the yeah. way you do it. Okay. Um, However, that's not always happening in, in their case. And so um, I, I find the report very biased. I think uh, it, has been, it has been rebutted by many in the health arena. And mm. uh, it's, it's solely based on observational studies in the health arena. And yeah. these observational studies are quite, are quite weak. Um, they are not cause and effect studies. They are studies where the researchers ask you, what did you eat last year? Yeah. What did you eat last year? Yeah, and I, then I, I, played, it, I played this game. Uh, we had uh, Sean Baker on the show. Uh, I, yes, I know you've been, yes, yes. I know you've been on his, on yeah. his uh, show there, but uh, he, he, yeah, we went this through. Like the, I, I, and I said, uh, it's a bad thing to ask Sean Baker that, but I could just take the next person <laughs> coming on the street and yes. I ask this person, can you tell me what you eat la ate last week? And then yeah. this is, and now the more professionality from my point of view is that, you know, we work with people every day with their diet. Yes. And we know that people are even cheating on their reporting on a daily basis. Yeah, right. So how are you supposed to get viable data from somebody's memory yeah you there. don't no. so and i mean there but, are studies about that too uh, of how people are positively reporting over reporting that's things that right, they think right, are right. good yeah 
But, um, but, but that's just the one part of this. Uh, first of all, there's underreporting and misreporting on what people eat. But secondly, yeah. the next question then is, uh, what are your health? What's your health status? So they ask people to provide memory protocols of what they ate last year. And then they ask them, do you suffer from diabetes or from cancer? Or what kind yeah. of cancer? Uh, are you obese? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, and then they, they do the association. They correlate the one with the other. Okay. Yeah. They look at how many times a week did they eat bananas and red meat and who knows what. And then they try to, uh, to come up with correlations of what people ate versus their health impacts. And that is just a, an approach riddled with inaccuracies and uh, with, with problems. Yeah, I, I can, like, again, this is, uh, it's more of a, it's more up to the creativity of the people that are trying to find correlations. <laughs> so it yeah. uh, doesn't, doesn't make too much uh, of sense. And again, we, uh, I call, I call this like we have this small gym here and I, I see it more like a laboratory. So we, we can actually see, uh, we can see, you know, demo if something works or not. Right. We can see that in actual numbers, like we can, and, uh, again, like coming, coming to the CrossFit perspective that we have, but there's this, that, you know, we measure output from people. Um, yes. And, and we do that by calculating simply the, the power output, like uh, how much weight they can carry up a certain distance uh, over a certain time. And then we can, yes. then we can just uh, figure out uh, how much people are increasing. And so we, we can do these kind of tests, you know, live. And uh, uh, when it comes to now, again, I, I'm also totally, totally open to whatever, whatever people want to eat, they can eat what they want. Uh, mm -hmm. I see it as my, uh, as I see it as our uh, responsibility, though, to try to do the best, to make the people to do the best decisions. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to if somebody wants to not eat something because of their religious beliefs, sure, sure, sure. Uh, or political beliefs, sure. Uh, yeah, but but uh, I'm I'm trying to be as neutral as I can, and again I'm 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 also biased in in many ways and so on. But this is why I want to talk to people that know more than me, <laughs> like you, because mm -hmm. I'm I'm not an expert in in your, uh, and I don't spend the countless of thousands of hours that you spent on on this subject. So I think the things that you've been saying now should be. Uh, something that people um should be listening to and and again you don't have to believe everything but just take in consideration the amount of time that you have spent or somebody has spent on this and uh and coming up with the real actual numbers that you have done and you have uh, again presented these numbers to organizations that they have changed their their numbers because because of that which I think is also a good, uh, good estimate of how good of research you've been doing. So uh, I, I would just try to point the people that are listening to this to try to maybe go and uh, listen a bit more of the things that you've been sharing. 
um, because we're not going to be able to take everything in this in this podcast. Um, but yeah, um, now you know, I you know, I, I I don't try to convince anyone of my no. points or so. That's not my role. Okay, my role is to um, to do research, to do science around livestock and its environmental impacts, and that's what I'm an expert in. Uh, so I actually work with real animals, and I have the facility, the equipment, the people uh, who are experts in measuring this stuff uh, to inform the public policy discourse and public interest with information um, that's real. And so people can take it or leave it. That's their decision. My role is not to convince people what's right or wrong. My role is simply to inform um those who are interested in uh in my subject matter area uh just for a question regarding the eight did did you get invited to uh to discussion with them or how yes did it, yeah yes i uh i had a discussion with the director of uh, of eat lancet uh his name is fabrice leclerc and uh that discussion took place in at cornell university may of 2019 yes okay. yeah and uh did you get into any conclusions from that or <laughs> how did that play uh it was a very courteous interaction a professional interaction which i appreciated yeah. they uh they, they he presented his viewpoints uh which are reflected in the report and i presented mine and uh and so the audience was able to hear point and counterpoint. And so that was really good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, uh, I mean, they have been, I would say they're pretty, they've been pretty successful in uh, spreading their, their word. Um, again, because I, I, I see them, uh, I've seen them, um, if you look at some, some metrics of how much spread they, how much uh, organic spread they have, and how much I don't know if it's funding behind it that makes it uh, makes them uh, possible to do a lot of this. Um, but uh, I mean, I, again, I've seen them. Uh, I've seen them a bit a bit over everywhere, especially in uh, in the main media. So. Uh, so, I, so, so he, so he has to deal with those guys. Um, so, in general, the reason why uh, the likes of Eat Lancet and uh, and many of the kind of activists out there, uh, the reason why one has the impression that there's a major movement going on, is because they are always in front of a microphone. They have a megaphone or microphone at any given time. They're actually a very small minority, a very small minority. Um, but they are very vocal, very vocal, very well connected. So yeah. you, know all the, you know all the discussion there's about plant-based alternatives to meat, right? Yeah. yeah. I just read an article this morning that 0.2% of the meat market is the plant-based meat market. 0.2%. Think about all the reporting there is on plant-based meats like uh, meat alternatives such as uh, uh, Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. I mean, if you were to believe what you hear in the media about those things, 
then they should have a market of 20, 30, 40, 50% by now. But they don't. They have a tiny little market of, you know, definitely less than 1%. Uh, so you have to really put your filters on when listening and hearing what they have to say. And uh, I will tweet something about this today because I found some really interesting numbers uh, from, right. from somebody in this field today. Yeah, that, that sounds... Uh... I'm going to check that <laughs> as soon as it come, comes out. Um, just before we, uh, I let you go, I, I just wanted to ask you, what would you say is the biggest difference between like germ, German agriculture and, and American uh, agriculture? I would say American, American agriculture is much larger scale, much larger scale. Uh, a dairy in Germany with 100 cows is considered a large dairy. Yeah. A dairy with 100 cows in, in California is non-existent. There are no dairies with, you know, certainly not with fewer than 500 cows. Uh, the, yeah. average, the average dairy here has about four, well, 1,400, 1,500 milking cows. There are many dairies with 3,000 cows. There are feedlots with anywhere up to 100,000 beef cattle. So the scale is very different. The scale of agriculture is very different. It's much larger here. Um, but with respect to the discussion around farming and sustainability of farming and so on, Germany is 10 years ahead of the United States. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to animal welfare and environmental impacts of agriculture, of food, when it comes to discussions around food quality and so on, uh, the Europeans, and particularly the Northern Europeans, including you know, Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Germany and the Netherlands and so on, they are 10, 20 years ahead of the United States. So if I want to know what will happen here in 10 years, all I need to do is you know, check in with my brother and I will know. Okay, okay, yeah. Are you still in, in a tight connection with European? Uh, yes, research. I am. Yeah, I spent yeah. a lot of time in Europe. Uh, yeah. And that's, of course, pre-COVID-19. Right now, I'm <laughs> housebound like, like all of us. Yeah. Um, so, last question before, uh, before we end up. Uh, what's your, what's your uh, favorite book uh, that you would recommend in any topic or fiction, whatever? <laughs> the Professor and the Madman. Professor and the Madman. I haven't read that, so that's a good tip. It's an interesting one of a uh, of a guy who wanted to assemble uh, an encyclopedia, and uh, and uh, he tried to do it himself, but he couldn't. And then uh, somebody who he don't know, he just he just didn't know who it was. Uh, assisted him in a very, very meaningful way. This guy who assisted him was prolific in, in how much information he, he contributed. And it came out that that was uh, somebody who was uh, institutionalized, uh, meaning, you know, mentally impaired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that guy did a major, major deal for the, the British Encyclopedia. Yeah, it's yeah. a great book. Okay, no, I, I'll, I'll put that on my, my uh, reading list. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Frank, I th thank you very much for, for 
joining today and taking time for this. I, I hope you and everyone comes out of this uh, uh, COVID and uh, Corona thing healthy and sound. Um, uh, and yeah, we need more, more good research out there. So, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll, I will uh, put, of course, uh, your uh, link in, uh, links to your blog and to your, uh, to your Twitter uh, below. Um, yeah, the, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And, and for those uh, of your listeners and, and viewers who are interested, uh, I'm also the director of a center here at UC Davis called the CLEAR Center. And so if you go to clear.ucdavis.edu, you'll find a webpage with a lot of good information. Awesome. Okay. Oh, good. Um, okay. Then uh, thank you, Frank. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for having me.